you know, and as you start to, as, as I'm sure your faculty and management have done, and as we've done in my practice and everybody's had to do, once you start to game out the scenarios, you, it, get, it can get very scary on, on what you can possibly do. Mind blowing. I mean, honestly, it, 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 and I think it made us all lose so much sleep at the beginning. Now that we're in it, at least we're just, you know, we're all a little more comfortable. I'm sure it's the same for both of you, you know, a little more at ease and almost like, okay, you know, whereas before it's like, what, 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 what is this going to mean if I can't do this or we can't do this? And, you know, the, it's, the, it's funny, the clinical skills has worked out well, the didactic teaching is still a challenge, you know, online teaching, online webinars is, 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 is a big challenge for what we want it to be. Sorry for saying sorry media presents the per podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein and... And I was ready to go. I was ready to go. And you took the words out of my mouth. Like we're on Zoom. So the other people on Zoom can see me. And you would have seen me with my, my mouth open and ready to go. Yes. And, now, and, who, and who are you? Because you forgot the Dr. Susan part. Well, well, I'm Dr. Susan Little. And I didn't have an election stolen from me. But I had an opening stolen. <laughs> oh, it's, you know, let's not get into politics right now. Please, but uh, yes. So uh, this is this is part two of yes. our wonderful podcast uh, with our favorite Canadian, one of our favorite Canadians. Let's not uh, not get in that that murky water either. Um, Dr. Serge Chaloux, and we're talking about uh, the issues that we have right now in veterinary education uh, during the pandemic, and we we had already. Quite a lot of topics uh, come by, and I ended with a cliffhanger. Uh, so thank you, uh, Serge, for being here. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So the cliffhanger was, uh, so everything is so regulated, and people are in their own little bubbles um, or pods or whatever you call them, and they do everything together, uh, especially lab-wise. But what if you get sick? So in the worst-case scenario, you get, uh, you are diagnosed with COVID, but it could also be the flu and you miss some of those things. What, you know, do you lose your whole year? No, not at all. And that's a great question. And knock on wood, we have had no one formally diagnosed. Uh, we have had a couple students uh, miss some labs, some clinical skills, uh, because they weren't feeling well. And as soon as they don't feel well, you know, just the same with faculty, we ask that they do not come in and they isolate, you know, we just don't want to take any chances. Um, so from what I understand, most of the material can be made up. Um, and that's, so that's not an issue either by, um, you know, a separate session. And again, we have a lot of videos, lab manuals, practice labs. So, you know, th those things can be made up for the clinical skills for, um, rotations because they are six weeks long. Again, it's a bit less of an issue. We'll ask our students to isolate, um, get tested. Um, so we're very lucky in Alberta. Testing has been pretty rapid. You can book online and book a test, you know, usually within a day or two and the results come in 24 to 48 hours. So we've been lucky for that. When it comes obviously to didactic teaching, everything's online and um, a lot of the material is recorded. So students can uh, review it afterwards. So that's, that's been, I guess, the one benefit of, 
of Zoom is uh, mm -hmm. recorded lectures and, and the online portion. And, and obviously if you don't feel well, but you feel well enough to listen, well, that's available to you, you know, from home. Are the instructors with cohorts too, or because now that, then that raises the issue, right? Like if your instructors are working with more than one cohort. Good question. So I think originally we had thought about that, but it was just yeah. too complicated. We're just not enough instructors. Yeah. Um, so when we teach labs, you know, as much as possible, we try to keep keep distance. Obviously, we're all wearing masks. We're all following COVID protocols. There's a major disinfection protocols. Um, but um, yeah, so thankfully, we just haven't run into that situation where, uh oh, we have a student or a faculty or, you mm. know, technical staff that's positive. All of a sudden, all of us would have to probably be isolated or at least wait till that person gets tested. Yeah, yeah. It's so complex, you know, and as you start to, as, as I'm sure your faculty and management have done, and as we've done in my practice and everybody's had to do, once you start to game out the scenarios, you it, get, it can get very scary on, on what you can possibly do. Mind blowing. I mean, honestly, it, 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 and I think it made us all lose so much sleep at the beginning. Now that we're in it, at least we're just, you know, we're all a little more comfortable. I'm sure it's the same for both of you, you know, a little more at ease and almost like, okay, you know, whereas before it's like, what, 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 what is this going to mean if I can't do this or we can't do this? And, mm -hmm. you know, the, it's, the, it's funny, the clinical skills has worked out well, the didactic teaching is still a challenge, you know, mm -hmm. online teaching, online webinars is, 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 is a big challenge for what we want it to be. Yeah. yeah I think yeah. the next step in this is, is the, because you have, I know that we were, uh, when I left the university, which was, you know, six, seven years ago, we were really uh, playing with, and U Utrecht has always been very, very progressive in these new teaching ways. So, you know, what you're talking about with the smaller groups, we had groups of 25, and that was 10 years ago already when we started with these working groups and people. So especially, you know, you were in your little working group for the rest of your six years at the university that's the group that you work with and then of course people were falling out and being moved in because not everybody made it but that working group structure was there um, so they were experimenting really with online classes where there was a lot of input so it's not just a webinar it's really you take a choice and when you take that choice you are directed on a different path so it was super interactive and so there's methods that can do that online but it takes quite a while to develop them and and that's the problem here because a lot of people were like there in the headlight again um suddenly you have the pandemic nothing was prepared and they're scrambling so in the beginning obviously you get these, you know, really quickly matched together webinars, which are probably pretty awful. And slowly but surely, you will get now into better ways of, you know, showing the same data in, in more digitally appeasing ways. Absolutely. And, and again, you've nailed it. I mean, it's for a lot of us, you know, I, I didn't think I was, you know, I'm, I just hit 45 this year. And it was one of the first times where I started feeling old because I had trouble understanding the technology, you know, and, and what it could do, you know, I mean, I've used Zoom, I've used, you know, a lot of these online platforms, but like you said, it was really sometimes just a quick intermediary, you know, technology tool. Now I use it every day. And so what I, what I found it brought for us initially, the, the faculty, um, initially we, you know, I think none of us imagined how different it would be. You know, we thought we'd just log on, show our PowerPoint slides. 
you quickly realize you don't have the same student engagement. They don't have the same access to you either. You know, the ability to ask questions or your ability to be able to gauge the room. You know, you know, you're 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 both you know fantastic lecturers, and you know how it is when you're looking around the room. You're like, oh, I'm getting a sense here that I've just lost the crowd. They're not laughing at my joke. Um, they're you know they're some of them are dozing off or you know. You or just, they look confused. They look confused exactly. You know, so that immediately I I again lost major sleep, even though you know we I've given thousands of lectures you know, and not just here, but, you know, in North America and in parts of the world. And it was just, it felt like I was going back to year one of teaching. So thankfully, you know, our faculty is very collegial and a lot of us were just getting together, sharing ideas, creating documents on how to do this on Zoom. You know, first of all, how to use the polling, how to use annotate functions, how to use uh, breakout rooms. Oh, geez, that was a challenge for a lot of people. Um, realizing we need help to do that. So we've hired assistants to help us coordinate those technology aspects, take that out of our hands, thankfully. And um, the students too, you know, we've asked them to keep their videos on. That really helps us see them engage and they see us engaged. And we've asked for a lot of feedback from the students and like, hey, breakout rooms are great, but you know, maybe this can be improved on or that could be improved on. And it's been a wonderful two-way street. At the end of the day, it this is one of those things compared to the clinical skills I was telling about um, that I will not replace what we do, but it is an interesting avenue into technology. And I think we will be able to integrate some of this into our future teaching. Right. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a challenge for this, for some of the students too, right? Because it's not just a technology and a teaching challenge for instructors, but it's a challenge for, for students to, for them to stay engaged, maybe for them to use the technology um, you know, it's, it's hard for everybody, uh, but people are flexible, right? And you got to do what you got to do. Absolutely. You know, one of the biggest challenges, internet speed. You realize that, you know, for someone like me who uses a lot of videos and pictures and, you know, diagrams, and the first few weeks were horrible because my, the students would write to me and they're like, we're not seeing the video. It's too slow. It's freezing. And, and, and the same for the students, you know, some of them live in, you know, just the rural outside part of Calgary. So all of a sudden people had to upgrade their internets, you know, and, and you just realize things that you would have never thought you needed to do, let alone understand the technology. And like you said, learn from home is a whole new challenge for students, you know, being at home, not having your, your peers beside you, your teacher that you can just go to talk to after, definitely a big change. It, it does expose inequalities that you don't expect, right? As you say, like just differences in internet speeds because of where you live, or um, maybe you can't afford the latest tablet or laptop that's capable of, of doing what you need to do. So we just presume, and, and yet there are inequalities out there that need to be addressed. Absolutely. And you know, the other thing is examinations, that just completely changed. You know, so all our exams are online. Um, do we make them closed book, open book? Is that feasible? You know, how do we account for technology? So we have, we've, we've actually added additional time to midterms and finals to account for technology. And, you know, the reality is a lot of our exams are open books. So that has changed how we assess as well, you know, because assessing a student on a multiple choice open book, you know, isn't maybe um, going to achieve what we all want it to be. So again, that was a major change in how we do things. And we're still working with the students to get that feedback is this working? We give them feedback. Do we feel this is working? Are we meeting those objectives? 
So I find the didactic portion actually the hardest part of this change with the pandemic. Does this put a lot of pressure on the teachers? There's no doubt. I think I think most of us feel um, that we're working more. And, mm -hmm. and it's interesting because I know my semesters, you know, usually I know which courses I'm teaching, which labs, when I'm doing clinics, everything's pretty predictable. And there's no doubt it's, you know, it's a hoorah, go, 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 you know, when the semesters start, this is different. And, and I find I'm joining a lot more meetings because we need to, you know, we have COVID meetings, we have extra meetings to see how this goes. And, you know, how do we do research in the middle of this? And, and clinics has definitely changed. So there's, there's more meetings. It's easier to say yes to meetings, right? Oh, five minutes to the next one, no problem, I'm here. You know, I don't have to travel anywhere. Um, the work into changing the lectures and the labs and also how we deliver clinics has added a lot of work. I would say most of my colleagues feel um, that there's been extra work um, th this year. Mm -hmm. and, and, and how do you do the clinics now then? Yeah, good question. Good question. So, you know, when the pandemic hit, we canceled all clinics. And thankfully, we only had three or four students that needed some core competencies. And we ended up delivering them online. And the ABMA was totally okay with that. That gave us some time to create a new clinical structure where we have these six weeks. Um, the, the groups are small. So thankfully, we have only 30 students to put through a fourth year. And um, but um, clinics, we, we've had to, you know, we have a distributed model. So we go to practices and our students go to practices to do their fourth year. So for me and my other colleagues, going to the practice meant also limiting who would go at when. So we split up our time. So we're not too many people there. Same with the students and had to make sure that the practice was okay with us, followed their protocols and, you know, essentially keep ourselves relatively isolated, you know, with whatever caseload we had. Yeah, it was a, definitely a whole other stress. And teaching with a mask on is, is a very different ballgame, you know, where you, you just run into challenges, right? Can you hear them? Do they hear you? And, you know, it's, yeah, it's definitely not a challenge. for surgeons, Serge, not for surgeons. <laughs> That's Don't what our surgeons that. said, too. They were quite happy. They looked like they were, you know, kids in a playground, like, you know, we're in a all day. And we were like, no, intern, it's like, ugh, ugh, ugh. Yeah. Uh, I, I have to say, though, especially if you're a vet in general practice where you usually do at least some surgery, right, uh, commonly, the the shift to wearing masks everywhere was like, that was the easy part of the pandemic, right? Yeah. Most veterinarians are pretty cool with wearing masks uh, for some length of time. That bit was easy. For sure. I, I agree with that because, you know, and, and you know, I, I, I used to be an oncologic surgeon and my surgeries took from you know, an hour to five, six hours sure. if necessary. And so these long periods of time that you had your mask on, it's, yeah. for me, it's not a problem. No, um, it makes uh, 30 minutes for groceries look easy, doesn't it? That's it, that's it. And as a matter of fact, it's kind of comfortable for me because it brings me back to having a mask on. Right. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm probably one of the few people that think that way. Well, <laughs> well that you know that's the one benefit of zoom is you you can actually take off the mask and you can actually see the students but yeah. i hear it for me I, I i hear you as a veterinarian i'm relatively comfortable wearing a mask but it does change that dynamic yeah. and and so that's what that the club activities that has changed you know ah. so we you know um so i have a, a i'm part of the small animal club and we have this event um called uh sh you know shoot the s with surge i don't know if i could say that yes that, yes yes yeah sure you can Okay, shoot the shit with Serge. So SSS. Yeah, Canadians and, will say anything, yeah. 
often with my other colleague CERN. So often shoot the shit with search and CERN, SSSS. And usually we do these after school, we order some food and the students come and we just do kind of a case presentation with no slides, just like one or two videos. And we go to a whole bunch of tangents and we debate the case and we do a lot of team teaching together. So uh, usually the students love. So it's a very popular after school event. And initially we're like, how are we gonna do this? Well, we've actually started doing them online and we have kept that same dynamic um, and we, 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 we have to prepare a lot more uh, versus before we just walk in and go. And, and now we, we just prepare a lot more and we engage the students more uh, with uh, questions from Zoom that pop up, you know, polls. And um, so that's been good. We, and we've actually changed it now that we're going to make it worth continuing education credit and offer it to all the vets in Alberta. Uh, because like now that. it's an online thing and it's, it's essentially online rounds. And so... Um, yeah, we it's so we've changed that. So that's been maybe one little weird benefit or change, even though I still prefer the in person. We have a yearly CPR competition um, through the um, Emergency and Critical Care Club that CERN and I usually help them organize. And uh, that we don't know how we're going to do that because that's yeah. usually an in person. Years one to four get in together into teams and do CPR, and we we do scenarios. We have a crazy client that's usually me and another colleague. Um, and we're just, you know, they have to deal with us in a communication way as well. So the communication part plus the CPR scenario. This year, we don't know what we're going to do. So we're gonna, maybe going to do some kind of Jeopardy contest. I don't know. We're still thinking about it. But so, yeah, it's just changed everything we do. And, you know, we just don't know what the final outcome is going to be. So far, it seems to be working. No doubt a lot of work. No doubt a lot of changes. And we'll see what we're going to keep and ditch really quickly. Also, when things go back to normal. Yeah. Are you still able to see uh, patients, Serge? Yes, um, patients, yes, uh, clients, no, um, un unless of course for euthanasia. Um, and, and that's been, th that has certainly again, changed the whole dynamic of my day, you know, because a patient has dropped off, often I'll, I'll read the history, do an exam, call the client or Zoom the client or telemedicine, you know, um, and, and then that changes that you can sense how different that is with the client. That has been a, I think a negative, you know, in the sense that not having the client in the room has really changed the dynamic. And I feel almost that trust or relationship building factor. It's hard. It's hard, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Every, every veterinarian in North America and around the world here hears that or feels that, right? Yeah. yeah. We're, we're all we're, we're busier. I don't understand how, but we are yeah. way busier. I don't understand it either. It, and it caught us by surprise in, um, in late spring when we were, um, I'm sure similar to Alberta, when we were allowed to start seeing non-emergency cases again, it just caught us by surprise how, how much demand there is. That still confuses me how much, yeah. yeah. Same here. Yeah. I think so a lot of people got extra pets and, and they yeah, also yeah. pay a lot of attention to their pets because they're home all the time. Yeah. So. There's a, the, the drive is much stronger to go to the vet and then there are no vet services. So you, you wait and wait and suddenly the doors are open. So everybody then just floods in. It's, a, it's like a tsunami of, uh, of pets with, uh, with issues that then come in. It is. Um, yep. and, and, you know, which, which is good for the profession because if they were also hit by people don't Care, not caring anymore about their pets and that sort of things. It would have been a lot worse, at least uh, for our profession. But there's and, economic issues too, right? And it surprised yeah. me that the yeah. economic difficulties, which I thought would dictate the inflow of patients, is actually not doesn't seem to be the biggest factor. 
No. And you know, it's interesting now that I think about it, um, I feel I'm seeing a lot more cats, which is interesting because it might be just like you said, you either people are paying attention more. Um, they're seeing things, you know, versus traditionally often, you know, cats do come in later for some of their illnesses because they're again, aliens from outer space and they hide things very well. Um, so, but yeah, so it's, that could be a benefit there, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, an unintended benefit. I wanted to ask you about mental health issues. So both amongst um, students and amongst faculty, because one could imagine that the university would have to uh, prepare for perhaps an increased need for mental health services. So have you, have you, what's your experience of what you've seen? You know, and that's a great question. Um, I feel we've been proactive on that front. Um, again, we're lucky we have a small faculty but um, immediately all, all syllabi have resources, um, not just for COVID, but for mental health. And um, we've also, uh, we have a strong mentor-mentee program here where faculty members have four or five mentee students. And traditionally that's, it's been kind of, you know, not, not very, you know, uh, concrete in terms of what we do. Yeah. Um, I, I try to meet up with my mentees two, three times a year. And obviously that became harder this year but they've added an additional um, tool in that, that we um, do have to meet them at least once a year when it comes to feedback with clinical skills and other skills. So the, the mentees will write a sort of reflection piece. We meet them, we talk about it, we, we open up the door, they get to know us better. And, and that is a, a nice way to at least ensure, you know, if there is something, maybe we can, you know, detected early and help them get the resources they need. So, yeah. so that's been good, but you know, I do worry about that because mm -hmm. there's no doubt, you know, there, there's, you know, we've all read in the news actually it was just in CBC how, you know, students are feeling the pressure because they're isolated a lot more, they're at home and, you know, the demands are different um, and, and how they learn has all of a sudden changed, you know, immediately. So mm -hmm. I do worry about that and faculty members too. Absolutely. It's a lot of stress on everybody and, and we're all, um, so much, so much remote work going on now that we're all kind of suffering at home in the dark too, right? It's a little harder to, to detect when people are having trouble. Yeah, and so we're all type A personalities. Oops, sorry, yeah. search, uh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say we're all type A personalities by nature, you know, most of us are as veterinarians, right? Yeah, yeah, so this is really, you know, it's difficult for us to be so isolated. So you were talking about uh, the, the virtual ex aspect of talking with clients and that it's more difficult. Do you have some tips for our audience that you have learned in the last couple of months dealing with virtual, talking virtually to clients instead of in person? Absolutely, you know, it's interesting. Something else I was forced, well, not forced, that's not true, but a new role for me is I'm part of the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association's National Issues Committee and telemedicine is my portfolio. It was actually one of the position statements I was um, uh, to review. So in March, uh, we created a sort of guideline document to help veterinarians across Canada, both in French and English. And we also gave webinars in French and English on how veterinarians can use telemedicine and links to each province's regulations, because it is different when it comes to establishing the veterinary client patient relationship, the VCPR. So, you know, tips, um, I think it, it's very important to be, um, um, to have technology that works. I know that sounds silly, but, oh. um, you know, um, not to have, you know, to be comfortable with the technology and um, to be consistent with it, you know, so um, as much as possible, you know, if you're going to use Zoom, um, you know, I did a beautiful Zoom session with a client on her dog that just got diagnosed with mega esophagus. And I, I remember to pause. I remember to ask open-ended questions. 
I remember to jot notes and, and tell the owner I'm jotting notes so I'm not my head down all the time and really build in the time that I would have in the same in the exam room, but recognize that I'm doing it online. You know, so I think I think telemedicine can be something that actually continues afterwards because we are reaching out to people that traditionally maybe we wouldn't be able to, right? Like underserved communities, far north communities, um, people with disabilities that can't come in, pets that have major anxieties and can come in. You've all seen that cat that, you know, it's like, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna bring my cat in because it's way too anxious. And well, this is another way we can reach them. Uh, but um, I'd be happy to share that document with you guys, if that's something that um, yeah, be you, great. Know, you posted, because it's, it's just sure. a guiding document. But yeah, so absolutely. Yeah. Well, and you, you mentioned the far north. So does the University of Calgary have any role in trying to provide services to remote locations? We have um, through our distributed veterinary learning community, which is essentially our big teaching hospital, you know, right. um, locations. We do have quote unquote far north locations in Alberta. Um, we are obviously open to phone consults, telemedicine consults with anyone. I mean, I'm communicating with someone in Manitoba right now and you know, we're, we're going to set up a telemedicine session. Yeah. So maybe not as officially, but yes, you know, as yeah. much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Because we do have some unique challenges right in, uh, in Canada, because we've got a lot of remote yeah. communities. So um, be, before we run out of time, because we always run out of time before I'm done, I want to make sure to ask you if you could pick one thing that's been your biggest challenge as a teacher, it, during the pandemic, what, what would you say was the hardest thing for you to master or overcome or learn to live with? Um, com uh, communicating and reaching out to the students. Mm -hmm. You know, I am a classroom teacher. I love walking into that classroom and feeling the energy, sensing the energy and, you know, changing my lecture based on that and how I deliver it and slow down, go faster, change topics. I am still not feeling that on Zoom. You know, on Zoom, I feel like a one person show as much as I try to get the audience active. You know, yes, I'll get feedback afterwards, but it's just not the same. And I don't think it all ever will be, you know, but yeah, reaching out to that true connection, connectivity is, is just not there. Great, the last five minutes, we are going to talk about kidneys, okay. Dr. Susan. Yes, so I give us the latest and greatest on, on chronic kidney disease. Well, you know, there's, it's, it's funny how things um, change pretty quickly, but, you know, we've talked about, I think the last time we were together, we talked about early diagnosis, we talked about earlier treatments. Um, now there's, you know, there's also machine learning, as you guys have probably yeah. seen out there, and how we can predict the development of chronic kidney disease, right? And some of these cats with these machine models looking at thousands and thousands of cases, and what that could potentially mean. Um, FGF23 also is potentially, you know, people have been talking about that. Could that be an early marker, at least a marker within chronic kidney disease and um, to help us determine which cases are going to progress faster and maybe we can act on them, especially when it comes to phosphorus. So there's a lot of interesting development since we were last together at uh, Wasava CVMA last summer when we were talking about this. Uh, but I am, I am certainly very excited always. Mm. Do, do you think, uh, I, I think when, whenever we hear exciting things like about FGF 23, for example, um, but then it has to be translated into a commercially available test and some are easy to move from the lab bench top to, you know, a, a, a large model and some aren't. And, uh, I, you know, we've researchers have been looking at FGF 23 for a long time. 
So I do worry a little bit that it's not going to be that easy to, to make a commercial test out of it. I agree. I've heard rumors out of Europe and potentially North America that maybe something is in the pipelines, um, yeah. that it could be a benchtop, affordable, rapid test, which is what we look for with these tests, yeah. right? You know, yeah. um, you know, essentially like what SDMA did, you know, and um, whereas before a lot of these tests were just not, you know, not, not only reliable, questionably reliable, but like you said, something that is available, affordable and rapid. Yeah. 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 And even able for a commercial lab, right? To churn out X number a day. Um, that's a different challenge from being able to be in your, your you know, your uh, clinic or my clinic and, you know, and work on, on in my lab too. So there's a lot of challenges to bringing these tests. Absolutely. But to me, I mean, the benefit is so there because, you know, yeah. the earlier we can diagnose and maybe predict, the earlier we can intervene. I mean, you know, we know once you're in chronic kidney disease and you're following iris, we have therapies that can really, really help those patients, right? And so if we could bring those to even earlier, I mean, the sky's the limit in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, so we, we can hope. We can hope, cross our fingers. I, I have my last question for you and then I'll have, give Susan the last question too. And my last question is what cat disease keeps you awake at night? Oh, okay, that's quite the question. <laughs> for me, it's it's definitely uh, probably your reader lists. Um, and, and just because I feel they're, they're underdiagnosed, they're often mistakenly diagnosed as chronic kidney disease or acute renal failure of another origin and missed and, and, and they get euthanized and, and it does keep me at night because I have seen it, you know, um, the, the odd email or text on the weekend, hey, don't want to bother you, but what do you think about this case? And then, you know, obviously my attention is there and just to think how kind of, you know, fortunate we were that we got in that communication. But so, you know, I, I, I'm very passionate about uh, obviously cats, kidneys, um, and specifically about your renal obstructions, because that is one thing that we could, you know, obviously willing finances, time and, you know, other diseases potentially help those cats um, have a different outcome. You know, just yesterday, actually, I'd love to share this video with you. Uh, this cat named Charlie, um, the owner sent me a video of um, Charlie running down the hall to uh, music from um, uh, Cindy Lauper, remember Cindy Lauper, uh, Oh Girls Want to Have Fun? And she's just running to this music and the owners essentially are telling me, thank you, we're two years wow. out now, uh, sub. And, you know, she, this cat had a creatinine that was, you know, unreadable at some point. Now the cat's doing great, getting actually overweight now. Um, we got to work on that. But, you know, so that disease keeps me up at night, but also keeps me, keeps me going. Ureter lifts, calcium oxalates. Geez, if we can find the cure for that, the way to dissolve them. Oh, that would be brilliant. Yeah, and it's a tough one in cats because you often don't know they're there until something bad happens. That's that's exactly. the other talking about early detection, right? That's the other. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So, yep. so my question to you is about um, what what has the pandemic done to your own research interests, right? And and uh, what challenges has that brought you? You know, most of my research is is clinical, and we do a lot of research with our fourth year students. We actually have a rotation that is based on fourth year uh, research experience. So that immediately got canceled last year. Um, and this year we tried, but again, it's, it's very difficult. So we are doing research right now with a student on um, the effects of COVID on fourth year students and also our clinicians out in practice. So it's a, it's a survey-based research, which is something I've done before with other colleagues, but it's certainly not, you know, the typical quote unquote yeah. research that we would do, you know, have a project. Um, Intern research is also kind of dried up because they're 
limited in what they can do. You know, they can't really see clients. They, they have, a, you know, it's, yeah. So it's definitely changed the way we do research and, and the, the quantity we do research. Yeah, so let's let's hope that that's something that can normalize soon, right? Because we've got interns and residents who need training and students who need to see cases. So yeah. yep, absolutely. This has been awesome. Thank you. It's going so fast, you know these 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 talks. It, you know, we always say, you know, this takes about half an hour, and the half an hour is gone before you know it. I'm gonna let you do the ending this time, Yola. You stole my opening. Excellent. Excellent. So if you like what you hear on this podcast, please subscribe to the PER podcast. Uh, you can find us anywhere on any platform. Um, we have a handle that is at PER podcast. Uh, we have a wonderful website, perpodcast.net, and we will share some of the things that uh, Sir shared with us uh, on that website. So uh, please give us a a good five-star rating that always helps other people to find us and uh, and subscribe and tell your friends and tell your friends yes so thank you Serge this was thank great you, you know this is the fourth podcast that we do together and you are amazing thanks for everything you do uh well thank you to you both of you I'm so happy and grateful to be here I really appreciate it Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs, and you can follow her on social media with the handle at Cat Pet Susan. Dr. Yerla Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVE. TSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove screwbite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast. 